Wow, the Spirit of God is inhabiting our praise this morning and speaking to us, ministering to us at our point of need. And I trust and pray that as we open His Word, that the Spirit of God will continue to come and to, to nurture and to speak to us and encourage us this morning. Let's pray. Father, You are a good God. We are called to worship You in spirit and in truth. And In fact, Your Word says that, that You look for those. You, you seek out those who worship You in spirit and truth. And, and through our praise this morning, through our prayers this morning, it is our desire that our, our spirits would be in tune and in touch with You. And that Your Spirit would continue to rain down upon us to bring life and to continue to write the story of our lives, the, the story of our salvation. We give thanks and ask You to come and speak through Your Word even in these moments. Amen. I would encourage you this morning to open your Scripture to Acts chapter 10. Again, as you've uh, understood through the Scriptures, we're, we're talking about writing and telling our stories, the, the stories of salvation, as we talked last week about what does it mean to grow young as a congregation. We, we talked about the importance and the necessity of, of sowing and of reaping, of cultivating our lives, our, our, our salvation, cultivating relationships with others. I'm reminded that Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2 that we are to continuously to work out our salvation. Now that doesn't mean that we're not saved. It means that as we experience God's grace, as we're justified through the blood of Christ, then we are called to a life of living that out, if you would allow me to say, of continuing day by day to write our story of salvation. I thought it would be appropriate for us over these next weeks to continue to cultivate stories of salvation. There on our bulletin cover, you saw the, uh, the family, one of the, the families that, that we went to minister to while in Refurio. We are called to, to reach out and cultivate life and faith and salvation through the power of God in our lives and others. And so this morning, we want to look at the story of a family. Now we don't know the, the names of the family members, although we do know the name of the father of the husband. And we pick up his story in Acts chapter 10. If you would, an unlikely story of salvation. Acts 10, verse 1 through 8. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian co cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and he gave many alms or, or gifts of charity to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, that was a time, three o'clock in the afternoon, that was a time when, when devout Jews, when God-fearers, would commit themselves to pray. And so at three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, 
he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now let's, let's kind of step back in history and see if we can get a little bit more of an understanding of the context and the situation of this story. And we're just going to tell the first part of the story today. And it's the story that introduces us to Cornelius. What we discover right off the, the, the top of the story is that Cornelius was a Roman centurion. The Roman centurions were the heart and the soul of the Roman army. The Roman centurion was a leader of men into battle. Listen to this history that, that was written back in, in this time that described the Roman centurion. It says the centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, his strength, and his dexterity in throwing his missile weapons and for his skill in the use of his sword and shield. In short, for his expertise in all the exercises. If you can see our picture, you can see the centurion right there at the front leading his troops. Now this wasn't a picture back 2,000 years ago, okay? This is a reenactment. But notice the, the soldiers in the back, those are the legionnaires, and their, their sword or their spears that they carry. So the centurion would be adept at, at using his spear in battle. If you can see uh, the centurion, his, his sword in his left side, that was one of the keys of the centurion. They carried their swords on the left. If you notice the other soldiers in the back, if you could see up closer, you would notice that their, their uh, swords are carried on their right side. And also notice the distinguishing characteristic of this Roman centurion in regards to the other soldiers is that's the headwear that he wears to distinguish him in battle, to draw attention to him, at least for his soldiers, hopefully not the enemy, but for his soldiers to be able to follow him into battle and to follow the lead and the instruction of the centurion. Now the, the centurion, the historian continues, is to be vigilant, temperate, active and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Now let me say that one again, because that sounds like good stuff. This centurion is more eager and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk about them. He's a man of action. He's strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers and in obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their arms constantly rubbed and bright. Again, the Roman centurion was the heart and soul of the Roman army. Now, a centurion was, most, was, was at least 30 years of age, a professional officer. Now, most Roman soldiers were enlisted for about 25 years. So that means that, that probably as a teenage boy, a, a soldier would begin his, his service to the Roman army. And then by the time they were 30, if they had distinguished themselves in battle with displays of valor, of bravery, of courage, if they were able to read and to write, 
then they might have the opportunity to be promoted and to serve as a centurion. Now, a, a centurion would, would lead over a century. Now, we would automatically assume that's 100 men. Most likely for the Roman centurion, that meant about 80 to 100 men, more likely around 80 men. They would train their soldiers, their, their legionnaires, they would maintain discipline within the ranks, and they would, would assign the duties that the century would accomplish for their daily uh, uh, chores and activities and also in battle. Now, the Roman centurion is also distinguished in the Gospels. There's at least two stories in the Gospels, and, and there's certainly even later in Acts, uh, beyond Acts chapter 10, there's references to centurions. But in the gospel, there's two stories, I think, that, that show light into the character, into the observ observatory nature and keenness and discerning of the Roman centurion. And it's interesting how the Spirit of God used Roman centurions, at least these two whose stories we're going to share in just a minute, to reveal and to illumine and to speak God's truth to God's people, even when God's people couldn't yet see it. These men showed an awareness and sensitivity to what God was doing in and through Jesus, even before his disciples understood. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse uh, 1 through 10. I'm not going to read the story, but just to kind of reference the story, Jesus is in Capernaum. Capernaum is at the, uh, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was there. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law lived there, and so that was a place where Jesus and his disciples often spent time. And while Jesus is in Capernaum, at some point, a centurion who's stationed there sends for Jesus because this centurion's servant is sick. In fact, he's sick to the point of death. And when he heard that Jesus was in town, he sent someone to go and find Jesus to come and heal his servant. And when the, the, the centurion's servant came and was, was talking to Jesus, Jesus was around some of the, some of the uh, uh, religious leaders of Capernaum. And the Capernaum religious leader said, Oh, yes, Jesus, this centurion is a man who is good. He, he, affirmed, he helped to, to build this, the synagogue while it was here and, and to support that. He's a good man. And if there's anything you can do to bring healing to his servant, then please do. And so Jesus made the determination it was time to, to go and to heal this man's servant. And yet while they were on their way, another servant came and said, Oh, my master, the centurion is, is just so ashamed. He's so humble that he doesn't even want you to come to his house. He, he was so uh, unworthy to come before you. He, he sent his servant even in the first place. And the, the servant says this from the centurion. Jesus, if you'll just speak a word, you don't even have to come to my house. If you'll just speak a word, then I have confidence that my servant will be healed. Because the centurion said, because I know authority. And I have seen in you an authority of God. And all I know that all you have to do is speak a word. And that authority will be carried out and my servant will be healed. And listen to the word of Jesus in verse 9. Jesus says that he, it says that he marveled and he turned to the crowd and he said, to the, said this, I say to you, not even in all of Israel have I found a person with such faith. 
Again, maybe revealing a little into the character of at least these two centurions in the New Testament. Of course, the second encounter we have with the centurion is at the cross. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 15. To Mark chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 16. It says, The soldiers took him away, took Jesus away into the palace, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. So if there was a cohort, again, that's around 500 men. They would have had a centurion in charge of that, an advanced centurion. A centurion had been promoted up the ranks to, instead of being in charge of 80 to 100 men, one who was in charge of, of probably five or six columns of of, uh, of centuries, and there would be a lead centurion, and there is a lead centurion that, as you continue to read the story, that would have been there, who would have been watching and, and seeing and observing all that was taking place as Jesus was taken into the praetorium, as he was taken into the courtyard, and he was, he was beaten and scourged, as he was made and forced to carry his cross to Golgotha, as he was crucified, as he was nailed, and, and the crown of thorns was put on his head. As he was nailed and crucified there on Golgotha, as the guards would have gambled away his only clothing. The implication is that this guard, this centurion, would have been watching his men and observing and watching Jesus all along. And we get to the uh, end of the story. And this centurion says, Surely, surely. This man was the Son of God. Now, one of the interesting questions that we have is, is that during the Passover, the Roman cohort from Caesarea would come with the Roman governor, Pilate, at the time, would come and they would reinforce the Roman troops in, in Jerusalem because you had uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of pilgrims coming into the city. And so the Romans would reinforce their, their troops there. And, and so Pilate would come in with his cohorts and with his guard, most likely an Italian, a Roman guard, because only the Romans and Italians were, were, were trusted in order to guard the Roman leaders and rulers that were stationed there. And so it's interesting that this is an Italian cohort that is, is carrying through the sentence of Jesus and so the question that we must ask is, is this a part of the Praetorian Guard that was stationed in Jerusalem all along, or could this have been part of Pilate's Guard that came specifically during this time of Passover? Now, we don't know the answer to that, but I think it, it asks a significant question and gives us pause to, to wonder what, what that would be. But regardless... I think because of these stories that we've looked at in Luke and Matthew and the story that we pick up in Acts chapter 10, I think it's pretty obvious that the Roman soldiers in Judea and Galilee knew about Jesus. And I'm sure that the stories of Jesus passed through the, the centur centurion ranks. And these stories were told as these uh, centurions had to, to take their men to guard and to, 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 to protect Rome and the Roman way of life in that area. So now as we look at Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a specific centurion, a man named Cornelius. Again, Caesarea was the capital of Roman Judea. It was built by Herod the Great to honor Caesar. I think we have a map here we can look at. 
This is, I know it's a, a faraway map, but this gives you a picture of Caesarea as we know it today. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. When we were able to go to Israel, if you've been to Israel before, you've probably been to Caesarea. In fact, it's most likely your first or your last stop on the tour. It's just north of Tel Aviv, just north of, of what we'd call biblical Joppa. And there is Caesarea. Again, it was built by Herod the Great as, an, as a tribute and as an honor to Caesar. Uh, you can see the little circle there on the map. Uh, the picture of that is where that we believe the temple of Caesar was at, that, that Herod would have built in honor of Caesar. Uh, the the uh, port there where it says harbor was the port that, uh, that Herod built to protect the shipping and, and uh, ships that would come in. Uh, it was one of the, considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world, this harbor that Herod helped to build and construct. Uh, just to the right of the harbor, you can see like looks like beach from here. That was the Hippodrome area. That was where uh, the chariot races and all the, the events and sporting events of that day would have taken place, would have been in that area. And then further to the right is where the amphitheater was, where the, uh, the palace of the governor would have been, where Pilate would have stayed. And so that gives you a picture of where Caesarea is, and that's where the Roman cohort would have been stationed where, where Pilate, the, the, uh, the Roman governor would have been stationed, would have been there and lived there. And then, like I said, they would have gone uh, during uh, times of Passover. They would have taken those troops into Jerusalem or other places where they had security concerns. But you can see wonderful access through the Mediterranean into that area, a significant and vital place in the life of Judah, in the life of the Roman Empire. Now, Cornelius was most likely an Italian centurion who had distinguished himself in battle. And he had moved, I suspect, and scholars would suggest, that he had moved into a place of administrative leadership. Senior centurions, those who were more administrative in nature, that led cohorts, would be at least 50 years of age. So at, mo at minimum, uh, Cornelius would have been 30. It's more likely he was on the other end of that scale, around 50, in his early 50s or late 40s. Again, he had a, a rule, and he, he ruled about 500 men. And this te the text that we just read suggest, suggests that Cornelius was an important leader, an administrative leader, for two reasons. First of all, he, he had the authority to send a soldier and two of his servants on a personal errand. As we read through the, the, uh, the encounter in verses 1 through 8, Cornelius was told by the angel to send for Peter. And so Cornelius was able to get two of his assistants, his aides, and a Roman soldier to go and to find Peter. That wouldn't happen to just anyone uh, who happened to be leading a century. This was a man who had great authority and had, had the respect of the Roman soldiers and of the Roman leadership. Also, we know and we see that Cornelius' family, his household, was with him. Again, signifying, indicating that he was a, a man of great respect and of leadership and was able to bring his family to join him there in Caesarea as he worked and as he served Caesar. Cornelius, again, was, was a key leader in the Roman so, uh, army at that time, especially in Caesarea. What the text tells us about Cornelius is that he was a God-fearer. It means he was an Italian. He was a Gentile. But he was a God-fearer. He was a, a Gentile who had come to believe in Yahweh as the one true God. And he worshipped Him alone. He was a God-fearer. 
And he practiced the, the, the religion of, of, of Israel, of Judaism, because he had come to believe not in the many gods of the Romans, but had come to believe in the one true God because I suspect because of his encounters and the life that he lived there in Israel for a period of time. And so the Scripture tells us that he was a God-fearer. The Scripture tells us that Cornelius was devout. He was faithful. He was loyal, to, I suspect, to, to the army, to his men. He was loyal and faithful to his family and to his work. It says that Cornelius' family all feared God. He was a spiritual leader, and he taught and he instructed his family, again, not to worship the many gods of Rome, but to worship the one true God, the God of Israel. And of course, the Scripture tells us that Cornelius was a, a generous man. He gave charity. He gave to those in need. And he prayed continually to Yahweh. And again, this particular story that we have, praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when he encounters an angel of the Lord in a vision. As we look at this story, Cornelius is praying He's praying, he's asking God, he's, he's, he's bringing his intercessions before the Lord. And the scripture says while praying, he has a vision and he sees an angel of the Lord. And in this vision, this angel of the Lord ultimately points him to Jesus. He says, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, your, your alms, your sincerity have been noted. And now the spirit of God comes to answer your prayers. Now, we don't know what. He was praying, but we know what the answer is. The answer was, go find Peter. Peter can help you with the answer to your prayers. Again, I think it has implications for the life that Cornelius was living, the, the story of his salvation and of his family's salvation. Church, the reality is that today in our world, and maybe even in your life, God continues to speak to us through dreams and through visions. Mission groups tell us that as many as 25% of Muslim converts speak of the role of dreams and visions in their salvation story, in their story of coming to Christ. The gospel, excuse me, the gospel coalition tells of a Persian immigrant who arrived at a refugee camp early one morning. And he was all excited and all upset saying that that night he had seen a vision of a man in white saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the way to heaven. And the man went just looking for someone he could tell the story to. And he came into this refugee camp and he shared his story. And then he said to the, to the person he was talking to, who is this person? Who is this man? The pastor at the camp was able to, to turn and open up the book of Revelation and show him specifically where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And the man said, how can I follow this man? Cornelius' response to the, the vision of the angel of the Lord was, Lord, what is it? What is it? What, what can I do? How can I respond so the question for us today as we consider cultivating our own salvation story, as we consider cultivating and being a part of the lives of others and cultivating Christ in their lives, the question for us today is will we have the courage to respond to the Lord as He answers our prayers? 
as God cultivates salvation within us. Here's how I, I think I want to, I, I need to interpret Cornelius' experience. Again, we don't know what his, his prayers were, but it seems that there's some unsettledness in his prayers. I, I think this is what Cornelius was praying. He was praying, God, I, I'm a good person. I, I, I've, I've discovered that you're the one true God, that, that all these other gods are, are, are not our false gods. I give to the poor. I practice my faith. I pray continuously. I pray at the anointed times. I'm faithful to my, to my work and to my job. I'm faithful to my family. But God, something continues to be missing. Something's just not right. Cornelius, it seems and it appears, had it all. In some ways, he was a man's man, but, but something just wasn't right in his heart. I can imagine him crying out to the Lord, please God, please God, give me a sense of peace. Give me a sense of hope. Give me a sense of wholeness, of shalom, where I'm at peace within. God, what is missing from my life? I believe that our churches, our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, our nation is so much like Cornelius. It is filled with God-fearers. But something is missing in our lives. We are devout. We love our families. We pray. We give to charity. But something is missing. Something still rings hollow. There must be more. Cornelius was yet to understand that salvation does not come from works. That salvation does not come from religion. Salvation does not come from just being a good person. He had yet to meet Jesus. But he knew something was missing. He knew something was hollow and unfulfilling about the good life that he had built. He, became, he came to understand that, that those things that he was pursuing were ultimately empty. What he did not yet fully realize was that God was cultivating in his life something new. Cultivating God's grace. Look at this powerful passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, by grace, by grace you are saved. By grace you are redeemed. By grace you are forgiven. By grace you are given new life. By grace you are saved through faith. Not of yourselves. Not because you give to the poor. Not because you pray every day. Not because you go to the church. Not because you're good to your wife and your kids. Not because of any of these reasons are you good and saved. But only through the grace of God who saves you through faith. It's, not as, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. I think Cornelius was in, in this early stage of his salvation story. And the Spirit of God through this dream and through this vision was cultivating a new aspect, a new experience in his life, a new experience called grace. 
And that for him to experience the life that he truly wanted, he had to come to that place humbly where he realized that, that there was a limit to what he could do. That he could not ultimately win and achieve salvation. He could not ultimately live a life that would bring ultimate fulfillment and peace within. And so at this critical moment when he has this vision, Cornelius is left with one thing to do. One thing that good soldiers know how to do. And that is how to obey. And so Peter, I'm sorry, so Cornelius makes the decision to follow through. And he gets a couple of his servants and he gets one of his soldiers. And he says, go and find Peter. Go and find this man named Simon. Cornelius understood authority and he obeyed the vision that he had. He was beginning to understand that he needed help. That he had gone as far as he could as a God-fearer. He had taken that journey as far as it would go. And what he didn't realize in that moment was that he needed Jesus to be Lord and Savior of his life. And so he sent for a man named Peter, hoping that when he would return and he would come, that Peter would tell him the rest of the story, would tell him what was missing in his life. You see, for Cornelius, his prayer was being answered. The story of his and his family's salvation was continuing to be cultivated and written. And so today, as we conclude this part of Cornelius' story, the question that we must ask is what about you and your family? Do you and your family have a story? of salvation? Or is your family's story simply about being good, and being devout and loyal? Those are wonderful things. But they're not the things that will lead to salvation and life eternal. Do you, like Cornelius, have the sense that, that something is just not right? Something is not whole or complete in your relationship or understanding of God Maybe it's time for you to send for someone named Peter to come and to tell you what is missing from your life. Maybe you already know. And maybe today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you realize that only through Jesus can we find salvation, can we find peace, can we find the ultimate meaning in life. Can we find the hope and promise of eternity? It is His gift of love. It is His gift of grace to you that matters. And God willingly reaches out to offer that to anyone and everyone who will respond. So we close, I'd like to just offer a word of encouragement to our men. Men, is it, isn't it time to quit being simply a God-fearer? To say, you know, there's a God out there and I, and I practice a little religion and I show up at church every so often and, and I give to the charities, I give some to the church. I'm a good person, I pray, I, I take care of my family. You're just like Cornelius. Because down deep you know something's missing. And that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
I believe we have some men here today that identify and you know exactly who Cornelius is because you are him. What God is calling you to do today is to obey His call and His invitation in your life to come to Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for this story of Cornelius. And we give thanks for his obedient heart and response. Oh, what, what a man he must have been. But even as a man, as a leader of men, one who loved his household, one who did good things, he knew that something was missing. Thank you for vision for a dream that he had that that caused him to reach out to Peter and Lord today whether male or or female man or woman I know that there are those here that can relate specifically to Cornelius and I pray today that they would hear the voice of God reaching out to them saying come come and experience grace quit trying to earn Salvation. Quit trying to discover on your own what's missing. Come to me and let me feel the hollowness of your life. Today we're cultivating that story of salvation in our lives. Maybe for some of us today, it's time to take that first step. To say, I need to visit, I need to talk, I need to pray with someone like Peter. As we stand to sing in just a moment, you have that opportunity to come forward we can begin that conversation or afterwards, after the service, to, to meet with one, to, to gather one of the deacons or ministers and begin that conversation. You be faithful as we stand and sing.